WWE Retro on the WWE Podcast on this Friday, July 29th, as we are one day away from SummerSlam, a SummerSlam that's feeling relatively underwhelming heading into what is, you know, seemingly the third biggest pay-per-view of the year behind the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. I gotta say, especially with Riddle and Seth Rollins not having a match at uh, at the, the pay-per-view or the premier live event, it really does feel like one of the more underwhelming SummerSlams in the history of the pay-per-view, especially given the fact of how big last year's card was with like the main event of Cena versus Roman Reigns and the subsequent return of Brock Lesnar. You had Bobby Lashley versus Goldberg, although not a great in-ring match, but still big from a... From a name perspective, Edge versus Seth Rollins, the return of Becky Lynch. Last year's SummerSlam truly felt like the WrestleMania of the summer, but not so much this year, especially with the underwhelming main event of Brock versus Roman, which feels like the 20th time. But we're going to go back in time today and cover a SummerSlam that I don't think a lot of people talk about that much, and that is SummerSlam 2000. And... I I watched this SummerSlam quite a bit in my lifetime, mainly because one of my buddies growing up had the, the pay-per-view on a DVD. So I remember watching it a lot and really liking this pay-per-view. And the thing is, is that it really isn't talked about all that much, which I find very, very strange because there were so many matches and moments that are pretty historic from that pay-per-view. The one thing that I think that of the reasons why it isn't brought up a lot is because of one of the wrestlers that wasn't at this pay-per-view, and that was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And for an Attitude Era pay-per-view to not feature Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's a pretty big omission, right? And that was kind of what we came to be get used to from late 1999 into the later 2000 months. And that was because Steve Austin was at home nursing a neck injury. Now, he had made sporadic appearances. He helped The Rock uh, win the WWE Championship. I believe it was at Judgment Day in 2000 or Backlash. I forget the pay-per-view against Triple H. He helped blow up the DX Express. But he really was yet to come back in an in-ring capacity. So, the year 2000 was basically the year of The Rock and Triple H. The Rock playing the role as the top babyface, and Triple H playing the role as the top heel. Kind of Triple H sliding into the role that The Rock had been in in 99, and The Rock sliding into the role of Steve Austin in 99. But there were also the a lot of other different guys who really kind of broke onto the scene, Namely, Kurt Angle. 
And we'll kind of work our way up the card here as we break down each and every match and kind of give a backstory if it's if it's uh, worth it. That is because uh, I guess not all matches are, are worth going completely in depth for. But it was a really cool pay per view to see like where the company was at, and it just goes to show that even at this time, missing by far the biggest star that the industry had to offer that it was still okay and you could still put on an incredible pay-per-view. So the show opens up in a six-man tag team match of the right to censor featuring Bull Buchanan, Stephen Richards, and the Good Father going up against Too Cool of Grandmaster Sexy, Rikishi, and Scotty Too Hotty. And, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the right to censor, but they were arguably the most annoying faction in the history of WWE, even because of their theme song. Their theme song was literally just a siren going off on repeat. And Steven Richards, I thought, really kind of opened up his character a lot, especially given the fact that he had come from, you know, the, the BWO in ECW. And look, the right to censor was what they were. They were just a lower card heel faction and them going up against too cool who for me i always loved too cool i thought they were a really fun gimmick i thought rikishi was a good worker obviously scotty too hottie had the worm they were really over with the crowd but the right to censor censor win this match in just under five minutes four minutes and 57 seconds and you know a classic match to open up a pay-per-view six-man tag team match but the heels getting the victory to kick off this show. Then we go to X-Pac versus Road Dog in a singles match as it's DX member versus DX member. And look, I, I, like I'm sure everyone has heard the term of go of go away heat aka X-Pac heat. I really never understood the draw with X-Pac and I think I'm not alone in that statement. And, you know, I think that he was a very big benefactor of being good buddies with the likes of Triple H and Shawn Michaels and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and all the other members of the clique. And look, he defeats Road Dog in four minutes and four, 40 seconds or 31 seconds, sorry. And look, I mean, it is what it is. I thought that this is a match that, you know, you have a hard time kind of selling to a crowd. But I mean, hey, look, two decent workers. They obviously have the DX background to draw off of here. But I think that it really just is a tough time. Or it's a tough match to get people to buy into, especially given the other talent that was on the card. And that was one thing about the way this card was structured is that it increasingly got better and better and better as it worked its way up the card. And I thought that more so in later years, they really tried to balance out a card where, let's say, WrestleMania 35, you open with Seth Rollins versus Brock Lesnar for the Universal Championship. Or WrestleMania 23, where Batista and The Undertaker go on at 8.30 for the World Heavyweight Championship. Or WrestleMania 37, where Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre open the card for the WWE Championship. Back then, it really felt like you it was a steady increase and working your way up the ladder as you got later on into the night. Then you have a Mitch, an intergender tag team match for the Intercontinental Championship of Eddie Guerrero and China challenging Val Venus and his Intercontinental Championship 
as he tags with Trish Stratus. And Trish Stratus at this point was nothing more than a valet. She had just come off of the team of uh, TNA, where she was the manager for Test and Albert. And here she's tagging with Intercontinental Champion Val Venus against Guerrero and China. And it basically was like a singles match of Guerrero and Val Venus going after one another. But China would actually end up getting the pinfall on Trish Stratus in just over seven minutes. And China becomes the Intercontinental Champion. So a pretty big moment at a SummerSlam where China, a female, wins the Intercontinental Championship. And unless I'm mistaken... I believe to this day, China is the only woman to hold the Intercontinental Championship. And she would win the match with, I I don't even remember what it was called. It was kind of like a military press into like a frontward scoop slam on uh, Tristratus. But like, you know, at this point, Tristratus was far from the woman that she would end up being as arguably the greatest in-ring performer from a woman's perspective. Or not the greatest in-ring performer, that's probably not correct, but the biggest superstar that the business has had to offer. and I. But I guess at this point, that would kind of be rivaled by the likes of Becky Lynch and uh, Charlotte, who are far and away much better in-ring competitors than Tristratus, and also don't come with all the baggage of being sexified and objectified at that point in the mat, at, uh, uh, along with being an in-ring competitor. Then you get Jerry Lawler versus Taz, in a singles match that lasts just over four minutes, four minutes and 20 seconds. And this was a cool match because it was still when Jerry Lawler wasn't too far off from being an in-ring performer. And, you know, he wasn't going to have a heart attack after having an in-ring match, which he had right here in Montreal. I believe that was in 2011. And, you know, it was kind of built off of Taz kind of getting in the face of, uh, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler over the course of their um over their course of their commentary and it ends with uh Taz getting a, a jar of candy broken over his head um by the likes of Jim Ross who helps out his good buddy the king and the king scores the pinfall victory over Taz to kind of put a bow on this feud then we get to one of the matches of which is my personal favorite which is Steve Blackman versus Shane McMahon for the Hardcore Championship. That lasted just over 10 minutes. And obviously, if you guys have listened to the show enough, you know about my love for Shane McMahon. So obviously, I am biased here. But I think that this was one of the first times where a lot of respect started getting handed out for Shane McMahon. Because to this point, he had been mainly a heel, and he was a heel going into this match, where he had been, you know, part of the corporation, helping The Rock win the WWF Championship at, you know, Survivor Series 1998, the head of the corporate ministry, the the manager to the big show going into WrestleMania 2000, part of the McMahon-Helmsley regime. Shane McMahon has just long been, as they call them, the prodigal son riding on the coattails of his dad or hitching his wagon to who he thought were promising competitors in the ring. But I think it was in this match against Steve Blackman where something would take place where I think everyone would start to respect Shane McMahon as not only just the boss's son, but as an in-ring competitor. 
And look, I don't want to go on another Shane McMahon tangent. I did an entire episode uh, dedicated to his career. But I just think that there's not enough respect given to what Shane McMahon did to his body just to get over with the crowd. And I think that this was the first example of Shane McMahon doing that. Where, you know, he climbs up the side of the rail of the stage and there wasn't really a ramp for the old set of SummerSlam. It was just flat on the floor. So he's kind of climbing up like this steel structure going up the side of the big SummerSlam logo. And Steve Blackman chases him up there and, you know, starts hitting with the candle stick. And you could you could see Shane positioning himself and he just kind of pushes himself off and lets himself fall straight back onto the, uh, I guess, the drop pad or whatever it was. And obviously very secure, but like... Shane McMahon just kind of made a living off of taking just absolutely insane bumps. And look, I mean, they even played off of it. Like, I remember Stephanie McMahon once said, you know, people like you, Shane, because you jump off of big things, which is kind of true. And look, hey, case in point me, I'm a guy who really was a sucker for that. But Steve Blackman, another guy who, I guess, during this era, I I always kind of call him the, the Cesaro of the Attitude Era, because a guy who had a really good look, a good in-ring performer, kind of had, like, the black belt gimmick going on, but uh, just a very bland character. I-, I think that's selling Cesaro a bit short, but I think Cesaro has more to give than Steve Blackman ever did, but uh, all in all, I just, uh, I don't, I think that they were kind of comparables in the roles that they played in the company at the time. So the next match is Chris Benoit versus Chris Jericho in a two out of three falls match. And 2000 was kind of the year of these types of guys like Benoit and Jericho in really their rise into the upper mid card. And, you know, they these two had quite a few matches against one another um, over the course of this year. They were they squared off in a triple threat match at WrestleMania 2000 along with Kurt Angle in a two falls match for the Intercontinental and European Championship. They would also square off at the Royal Rumble 2001 in a ladder match for the Intercontinental Championship. They would end up actually tagging with one another in the forgotten TLC match on a Raw, I believe it was in May of 2001, and they became the tag team champions. And look, like these two had really good chemistry, both as opponents and as tag team uh, partners. And that also kind of spilled into the ruthless aggression era into like the years 2004, 2005. Both were involved in the first ever Money in the Bank uh, briefcase match at WrestleMania 2005, WrestleMania 01 in Hollywood. And uh, Benoit ends up getting the victory in just over 13 minutes, 13 minutes and one second as he defeats Jericho 2 to 1 in a best 203 falls match and a really good middle of the card match non-title and uh just really good wrestling like you can never go wrong with Benoit versus Chris Jericho then we get to the first ever TLC ladder match between Edge and Christian the Dudley boys and the Hardy boys and look they say that this was the first ever TLC match in reality, it was kind of the second match that these guys would have because their first match at WrestleMania 16 was considered a, a triangle ladder match or a three-way ladder match for the tag team titles. But for all intents and purposes, it was a TLC match. They just hadn't thought up of the name yet. So this was kind of like the second of three installments between the Dudleys, the Hardys, and Edge and Christian. 
and I think this is the one that does get forget uh, that does get forgot about the most because a it wasn't the best that one is reserved for WrestleMania 17, and b it wasn't the first as that was WrestleMania 16, and c it wasn't at WrestleMania, but it is technically the first ever TLC match between these two, and WrestleMania 17 was TLC two, but like I said, it pretty much was the second match of these guys. And this match went over 18 minutes, 18 and a half minutes. Um, and it was the second longest match on the card. And it surely did not disappoint when it came to a finish. Bump up Ray Dudley took in this match, my word, just gets shot off the top of the ladder and he goes barreling through four tables set up on the outside. Matt Hardy takes a crazy bump as well and like it, it was always with these six competitors, they never disappointed and arguably stole the show every time the six of them got together. So after that, you kind of need a cool down match and what about a stink face match between the cat and Terry? 
what is there to really say about this? Uh, three minutes and seven seconds, a throwaway match, sexifying, objectifying women. Really no point in covering this. It served no purpose in the grand scheme of things. Moving on, <laughs> we get Kane versus The Undertaker in a no disqualification match. And this is kind of the match between these two. And there's been plenty over the years that I think isn't talked about enough. This was about two, three months into The Undertaker's return to the company as the American Badass. And there, this is the match that I think gets lost in the shuffle a lot when we talk about this rivalry. So considering that, let's take a listen on how this match came to be at SummerSlam 2000. That would be the build-up to this match and why it came to be. It was kind of a rushed uh, match. I think they just wanted a big-time match for the pay-per-view. And it kind of just came and went, didn't have a lot of impacts on it one way or another. It actually ended in a no contest with The Undertaker ripping Kane's mask off and Kane just retreating to the back. But for me, it was just kind of like, oh my god, we have these two guys, we need something for them, let's just throw this together. They really started the build of this match, I believe, like two weeks, a week and a half prior. So, um, you know, it, it was a big match on paper, you know, Taker versus Kane, that's always a big contest with one another. But in the grand scheme of things, as you heard in the promo, it just came from Kane just attacking his brother for no reason and then his reasoning was well i'm a monster so you know just goes to show that even in the attitude era the best era that wwe has ever had to offer there were kind of dumb storylines but look when you have kane and the undertaker it always kind of makes sense to throw them together just because of the history between the two but this one was one of the more forgettable uh, builds and matches in their historic rivalry and relationship and then we get to the main event of The Rock defending his WWF championship against Kurt Angle and Triple H. But the fact is, is that even though The Rock was the champion and arguably the most popular star in the company at the time, especially with Stone Cold Steve Austin on the sideline, as you'll hear in the build of this match... The Rock and his World Championship was an afterthought heading in to the main event of SummerSlam. 
So Kurt Angle and Triple H were basically at the heart of this main event. It was basically a story between Kurt Angle and Triple H, and The Rock was just kind of used as the, I don't know, like uh, the cog in the machine to get them into the main event and make it a main event level match. Because as you heard in that promo, this is all about pretty much a love triangle between Kurt Angle and Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. And they were just kind of thrown into the main event. The Rock had nothing to do with it. And it ends with Kurt Angle kissing an unconscious Stephanie McMahon. And then she wakes up and seemingly likes it. So, obviously, by the time this match is ready to go, there's a lot of animosity between Kurt Angle and Triple H. 
Kurt Angle comes out before the match even starts, cuts a really intense promo on Triple H, which results in a brawl before the match would even get underway. minutes before the rock even comes to the ring massive brawl breaks out between triple h and kurt angle results in one of the bigger botches of of all time uh with uh, triple h looking to give uh kurt angle a pedigree through the announce table and the table actually gives away and before he could even hit the pedigree they the table just completely collapses and i believe kurt angle really got hurt in this uh in this instance and you actually see Triple H, if you actually watch the video, you see Triple H several times checking on Kurt Angle. And Kurt Angle would leave the match for a bit. I'm sure it was half work and half shoot. But uh, I remember even when they would show clips of like these guys getting hurt in like, the don't try this at home stuff. They would often show this clip of the of the botch of... Uh, well, it wasn't really a botch. It was no one's fault. It was just the, uh, the table gave away before Triple H could actually hit the pedigree onto the table and Kurt Angle really just got his head bounced clean off the table and uh he gets wheeled out the Rock and Triple H kind of have a singles match for a bit but Kurt Angle eventually makes his way back to the ring and let's see how this match would ultimately conclude SummerSlam 2000.
And there you have it. The Rock would take advantage on the miscommunication, I guess, or Triple H knocks out his own wife. Kurt Angle knocks out Triple H with a sledgehammer. The Rock hits the people's elbow after getting Kurt Angle out of the mix, retains the WWF Championship to end SummerSlam 2000. And SummerSlam goes off the air with Kurt Angle carrying an unconscious Stephanie McMahon to the back as Triple H is left lying in the middle of the ring. And this entire program was a coming out party for Kurt Angle. And to be honest, his, his entire first year was a coming out party. Arguably the best first year we've ever seen in professional wrestling. And he would actually win the WWF Championship at um, No Mercy. I believe it was No Mercy in 2000. Uh, about two months after this match. With Stephanie McMahon actually help uh, accompanying him to the ring. Triple H got involved in that match as well. But uh, two pay-per-views later, uh, Kurt Angle would finally win his first ever WWF championship, defeating The Rock after plenty of interference in that match. And he would later drop it back to The Rock at No Way Out in 2001 in February. But all in all, a very big SummerSlam, a very good SummerSlam, and uh, one that kind of goes to show the kind of star power that WWE used to, or WWF at the time, used to have up and down the card, even without a Stone Cold Steve Austin. And a little flashback to SummerSlam from 20, 22 years ago as we head into SummerSlam tomorrow. Well, anyway, guys, that's all I got for you today. I hope you enjoyed my review of SummerSlam 2000. As always, you can get me on Twitter at Adamarco25. You can get Matt on Twitter at wrestling underscore audio, or you can email him at realwwepodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, guys, enjoy the pay-per-view. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the WWE Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a show or head to wwepodcast.com. And for all of these shows ad-free, head over to patreon.com slash WWE Podcast. Until then, we'll see you next time.